Welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast, the podcast that aspires to support and inspire people to move, exercise and live an active and fulfilling life despite a cancer diagnosis. The podcast where we share the stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary things. We know that many people are scared to stay active during cancer treatment. We know that for some, cancer can take away the hope that comes from dreaming of a future. And we know many people diagnosed with cancer feel isolated and lonely. We hope that by sharing the stories of others finding their way through cancer, the Move Against Cancer podcast will provide hope, support and a sense of empowerment to anyone living with and beyond cancer. Hello and welcome to the Move Against Cancer podcast. My name is Lucy Gossage. I'm an oncologist in Nottingham. I'm co-founder of 5K Your Way Move Against Cancer. Um, And I'm a little bit of a sports nut. Um, I don't know about you guys, but I have been loving this weather in June. Um, I've been taking myself off on some amazing biking and running adventures and generally just enjoying some sunshine, some long evenings, all those green fields, the yellow flowers. Um, I really think that June is for me the... um, definitely the best part of the year um, and I've been savoring every single minute um, so I hope you guys are all uh, really well um, thank you for listening um, and I hope you've enjoyed the amazing episode so far um, now this will be the last one from me Gemma is going to do the next couple of episodes um, we don't really have a, a routine about who's doing who um, so uh, it feels like I've, I've done far more than my fair share so I'm really looking forward to sitting back in a couple of weeks and listening to Gemma. Um, but this week, I am so excited to share um, with you an in the, uh, conversation that I've just had with David Smith, um, MBE. So David is someone I came across back in 2015. And at the time, I was a full-time athlete. I wasn't working in oncology. Um, and I remember seeing a documentary about him called Dead Man Cycling. And it, I watched it and it, it has stuck with me ever since. Um, so David was born with Cubfoot um, and he pursued able-bodied sports at a really high level um, for, for ever since childhood until his uh, early 20s. So he represented GB at international karate, at bobsleighing. He was a very high-level skier. He was a very high-level athletics runner. Um, but because of his club foot, he found himself on the UK Paralympic rowing squad. Um, I think he'd just missed out on the um, able-bodied bobsleigh Olympics team. And one of his aspirations was to get a, an Olympic medal. Um, and back in 2010, whilst he was on that elite uh, elite um, rowing scheme, he was having a few hiccups in training, so underwent some routine tests, I think arranged by his physiotherapist, which included an MRI scan of his spine. And that ultimately led to the discovery of a tumour which was crossing his spinal cord. So he had to have huge, life-changing surgery that put him uh, in an intensive care bed, uh, unable to walk, and he had to build back uh, quite literally from scratch. Um, 14 months after that surgery, he won a gold medal at the World at the Rome World Championships, and less than two years later, he won gold in the mixed Cox 4 in the Paralympic Games. But... In 2014, his tumour came back. And since then, he's lost, um, sorry, since then, he's undergone, I think, a further five huge surgeries. 
and the operation that he underwent in 2016 left him paralyzed, so unable to remove the left side of his body um, and unable to feel the right-hand side of his body. Um, and living with a spinal cord injury comes along with a lot more than just a visible paralysis. David is someone who has to live with a spinal cord injury, but he also has to live with the fear of his tumor progressing. Yet despite this, David is someone who lives life in the very true sense of the word. Um, I've just had a really amazing conversation with him. So much of what he says resonates with me. Um, and I really think that um, everybody can take quite a lot from this. So enjoy, uh, get a cuppa or take yourself out on a bike or a walk or, or whatever you're doing. Just sit in the garden in some sunshine. Have a listen to David and... Um, I am sure that it will make you reflect a little bit on um, on how we, we live our lives. Enjoy. David Smith, um, hello. Thank you very much for joining um, joining me today. Um, so I, as you know, I, I first came across you back in 2015 um, and I was a full-time athlete at the time and I, I don't know how I came across the documentary Dead Man Cycling, um, but it I watched it and it stuck with me and it resonated with me so much. Um, and I think, firstly, it, it it was a really timely reminder that, you know, I was just riding my bike and, and racing and it reminded me that I loved oncology and I did have a career to go back to. And that was that was really nice remembering that. Um, but I think it also made me remember how lucky I was to be doing what I was doing and, and racing professionally and, and kind of reminded me to savor that opportunity and um you know you never know what what is around the corner so then a friend um out on a run she she said a couple of weeks ago oh, why don't you talk about uh, why don't you reach out to david smith for the podcast and obviously the documentary came uh, rushing back to me um and i was doing a little bit of a, a look into what you've been up to and the song that came into my head <laughs> i'm not a singer but was I get locked down, but I get up again. You're never going to keep me down. And you are, oh, my God, you are like the real-life living Chumbawamba. Um, how how do you manage to pick yourself up so many times? Wow. Well, first of all, I think the name Dead Man Cyclone was a terrible name. That wasn't me <laughs> that came up with that. It was a hellish name. I was oh, my God. And I, it's almost it feels like that name of that documentary cursed me for the rest of the 10 years that have followed um, you know, I've had uh, four diagnoses now with with the with the tumor in my spinal cord. Uh, I've had six surgeries, and, and one of those surgeries paralyzed me in 2016. And and I remember after the very first surgery, and I'd gone through all the rehabilitation. I'd had a spinal stroke after the first surgery, so I had two major spinal surgeries in the space of sort of six seven days. I remember coming through all the way through rehabilitation and getting back, I guess, into norm, what you would determine normal life after you've been diagnosed, gone through the surgeries, and you've kind of lost your identity, you've lost your independence, and you get it all back together. And it was it was probably about a, a seven-month to a year journey um, from the minute of being diagnosed to getting back into what I classed as a normal life. And I remember saying to myself at that point, I could never go through that again. That was just the most horrendous experience ever, uh, probably the biggest test I'd ever been through. But it was like, I guess in a lot of ways, I thought I can, I can do it once and get through it once, but I could never get through it again. And that was in 2010. And the, every scan up until 2014 was actually clear. And I remember going into the, 
scanning machine in December 2013 and the song from John Lennon, Imagine, was playing. And I just, and I was listening to the lyrics as I was in the MRI machine and I was just going through everything that had happened during the surgery, the rehabilitation, getting back onto the national team, doing sport, the whole, that whole thing. And there was a moment in that scanner and I just thought, wow, how would I react if it does come back? Would I be able to do it again? And little did I know that that scan in December 2013 actually did show some enhancement and I would face it again, not just the once but four times and actually over the last 11 years, it, it's become it's become really it's been really hard because it, I'm, I try not to identify as, uh, as a, a tumor patient, a cancer patient. Now I have a spinal cord injury as well, so that the whole identity has been really challenged. And I think one of the, the reasons I do get back up every time is that I've had to do a, a tremendous amount of inner work. And this was something that I seen as a, in a lot of ways, I seen it as a gift. And I tried to reframe the tumor diagnosis because, you know, anytime in life, I, sometimes I think if you've never gone through any adversity, you can be an autopilot and you can be sleepwalking and you're not really fully aware of your surroundings or yourself. And when you're faced with something like this, you you don't have to, but I think it does force people to, to delve inside themselves and try and find some strength, try and find more about their why in life. So I started uh, delving down the philosophy road and the psychology road. I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. That was one of the first books I read. And, and in that, the philosopher Nietzsche said, if any man who knows his why can withstand any how, and that really resonated with me. And I was like, well, I need to, up until this point, I kind of been an autopilot. I need to find out my purpose in life, what's my philosophy, my my guiding principles, my values, what I stand for, what means a lot to me. So I, I started to delve into that. And that's a, it's been an ongoing journey. It's something that I don't think ever stops. I'm constantly working on it. Um, but I think what it's done is it's it's taught me a lot about life. It's taught a lot myself a lot about me as a person and ultimately that's probably why I've been able to to come back every time because I was very clear on what my purpose was what my philosophy was and any time where I started to struggle with the diagnoses and the surgeries and the, the, the thought process of well I don't think I can do this again I don't think I can do this again I, I knew where those thoughts were coming from I knew it was catastrophizing I knew that I needed to reframe it so what I did is I, I did that and I just basically went to my, my trusted pad that I keep with me all the time. And uh, that's my that's basically my mind on paper. And and, and I've managed to do it. I won't say it's easy. It's there's there's days where I have meltdowns and I'm lying in a ball in tears. And then there's other days where I'm cycling hundred kilometers. And I, I think it's for me one of the big things was just accepting it, accepting the situation, accepting what it was and then trying to find some form of meaning around it and purpose so I could actually live live my best life. So you, I mean, you, you've, been, you've been through so much. Um, how, 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 how have you found, like, what is the meaning? How do you rationalise? Because, you know, from the outside, it just seems so unfair that mm. you've had to endure so much and so many rounds of surgery how have you managed to find a way to give that a purpose or a meaning yeah I, i've never said why me i remember listening to someone and they said why well why not me and 
And I guess initially I was in denial. So I, I guess I went into what was known as the Kruberoff stages of grief. The trauma was so much. I, I, I lived in denial probably for most of the surgeries almost. I think I spent 10 years in denial before I really started to accept what was happening. Before the tumor, actually up and probably until London 2012, my, my purpose in life was, was I wanted to win a gold medal at games. That, that's what drove me. So through the first surgery, it was all about, I needed to get to London. I needed to get back in a boat. I wanted to do sport at the highest level. I wanted to win. So that's what drove me with that sort of single mindedness of uh, getting to where that, that sort of outcome goal I want to get to. Subsequently moving on, my philosophy's changed to, my philosophy is I want to live where my feet are. So I want to be present. I think there's too many times that we live in our minds and we're either in the past or the future. So my philosophy is very much about live, live where your feet are, live in the now, be present. And my purpose now is to try and share with people what I've learned to just make a better world, just to try and have people with more compassion, the people who are sleepwalking, to try and wake them up. So this is my new purpose. And my passion and vision is all around, well, how do, okay, how do I do that? So I, I love to cycle. I love to do my sports. I still do my sport and I still try to compete. But it's my purpose is not to try and win a medal anymore. It's literally, I genuinely want to try and help other people with what I've experienced. So what that does is it, it kind of tells me inside the line, I need to be strong because I need to show to people that, okay, if you do have to face this and you do have to face multiple diagnoses, radi radiotherapy, oncology, chemotherapy, all these things that you can find meaning. And one of the, the only things that, all of this can't take away from us is, is, is our own thoughts and our own consciousness and our, the way we react to it. So no one can take that away from us. And, and Viktor Frankl spoke a lot about this in his book in the camps when they were, everyone was getting ill and dying and people were getting tortured. And he used to say to himself, well, I, no one can take my thoughts away from me and, and my, that how I'm going to react to it. So that was something I really tried to tune into and, and it's, you know, it's not easy. I, I sit, I'm on the phone today for oncology to get my results from the next one. But I also realize, and, and I guess it's kind of simple to say this, that there's no point worrying about something that's not, that's in the future because it's not happened yet. So we're very, we build all these bridges of what if this happens, what if that happens, and you use up so much energy and then you get your result and it's actually okay then you, you think, well, why did I waste all those days worrying about something? Or you get your, you're, you get told you have a tumor again and you face it. But until you're actually told that news, it's, it's in the future. It doesn't exist at the moment. So um, that might sound a little bit crazy, but um, it's, it's stuff that I've really tried to work on and, and I really enjoy it. And that's kind of what's kept me able to, to almost get knocked down, get back up. And if anyone's never read The Alchemist, I, I would encourage anybody, everyone to read The Alchemist. It's an amazing book. But certainly if you're on the journey of, of cancer, I think it's a very poignant book. And there, there's a great message in there about getting knocked down seven times and getting up eight. And, you know, there's a big debate if resilience is nurture or nature, how does it come? There's so many people say to me they could never endure or go through what I've done and come back multiple times. And I was like, well, if someone had asked me if I could have done it, I'd have said no. But when you're tested, you you, you can, and not not everyone can. It's you know this is a very individualized journey. The language that's used around cancer, as you'll know, as an oncologist, is very 
individual to each person. People like their own terminology. People like to perceive it in their own way. Some people like to use the word fight. Other ones don't. So it's very personal. Um, but what I think would, is, is great is, is delving into that inner work and trying and getting support. I've, I've had so much psychological support from psychotherapists, from you know the, the cancer charities that are out there, from friends, from families. This is a journey you, you can't do on your own, that's for sure. And, and that's probably something that's, that's helped me more than anything else is having that network there to be able to get through it um, in, in that support network. So it, yeah, it's, it's one of the things that um, I think I think we hope to share through this podcast. Actually, is you know, as an oncologist, you see people at diagnosis, and 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 you know, I treat, for example, osteosarcoma. You you have maybe ten weeks of chemo, then you might have some mutilating surgery, then you have another, I don't know, six months of chemo, something like that. And and you talk to people about that, and and it sounds insurmountable but every single person does get through it and and Mm -hmm. you know if you say that to someone who's not exposed to cancer they would think I couldn't deal with it yeah everyone does no one falls apart people do they have their 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 wobbles and the wobbles can be big but and it's one of the the most amazing things about the human spirit that you see in oncology which makes the job so so fulfilling and so rewarding and um I think those yeah, that resilience that that you talk about, we all have it within ourselves, um, but we sometimes don't get it out in, until we have to. Um, so I was going to, one of the things I wrote down in my little notes was when I kind of think about you, one of the, the words that most springs to mind is, is resilience. Um, and you talked a little bit about kind of going through your life on autopilot until you were diagnosed, whereas, you know, from the outside, you were an elite sport person in... I don't know, taekwondo, running, rowing. Mm. Um, I, I can't remember all the sports, like mm. loads and loads and loads of different sports. And, the, from the, and you were born with club foot. No one from the outside would say you were getting through life on autopilot. Yeah, well, I think, you know, I like to see life in two ways. We're either human doing or human being. And it's very easy to become human doing, get caught in a treadmill, whether that's in the the rat race of a city, whether it's in family business, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in sport, we'd be very much become just human doings. And we, I guess we have these targets and these goals, but then we, we're just fully attached to them. And I always think it's, it's like standing at the bottom of a mountain and the only objective is to reach the summit. And you become so fixated on the summit that you actually miss the process of getting to the summit. And that just ruins the whole journey. Then when you get to the summit, you're kind of like, well, oh, is that it? Because the thing with happiness is that it, you have your baseline and, and throughout the day you'll go up, you'll come down, you'll go up, you'll come down, but you you never stay really up here if it's coming from an external factor. So, you know, a lot of athletes chase medals, they chase national teams, they get the medal and then they're kind of empty. There's a great saying in cool runnings, if you're not enough without the medal, you won't be enough with the medal. And, you know, that that's like such a great message. And, and I didn't really learn that until I became you know, very intertwined with the, with the cancer world and the spinal cord injury world, that for me, I was probably a human doing the whole time. And I didn't really savor those moments. I didn't realize, I didn't take them, I didn't, yeah, I probably took them for granted. You know, I never thought what how great it is to have two arms or what it's like to be able to, to run down the stairs or even just jump out of bed and go for a shower. And this stuff was just all done on autopilot. When I was skiing off the back countries, there was moments of, this is amazing. But in my head, I was constantly attached to got to win medals, want to be a world champion. So even when I was skiing, my head was not, my head was somewhere else. And 
and I wasn't like that as a child. I think it just that's the thing with sport is that there's a really thin line between obsession and passion. And what started off as a passion became an obsession. And it wasn't really until I think I was paralyzed that I actually woke up properly awakened, um, even though I'd been awake my whole life, but actually really awakened. And there was, uh, I was watching a great interview the other day and uh, the author of The Alchemist actually asked uh, the interviewer, you know, when did you know you were alive? And it was Oprah Winfrey who was the interviewer. And she's like, I don't think I've ever known I've been alive. And I completely got that question. I was like, I'm most alive when I'm in an MRI scanner. Because at that point, I know how precious life is. I know what the balance of life is. So anytime I've been on an anesthetic table or radiotherapy or anything through this whole journey, I've actually felt more alive in that moment because I know how close you are to, to death. And, and I think that's a scary topic, but it's also a very powerful topic because it, I think it does teach you how to live. And, and that's how I've seen this whole diagnosis and journey with cancer is that, that it's actually shown me how to live. So I think before, yeah, I, I did all these sports, but I, I realized that I was in very much human doing mode because I was so attached to this outcome goal. And, you know, in especially as athletes ourselves, we set those targets where we have that mindset. But then the pressure that comes in from UK sport and the government that you must win medals, you must be win medals, then that drives that even more. And then what you end up with is with a bunch of athletes who have mental health issues and actually are not enjoying their sport, um, which mm. is great, which is crazy. Um, and when, when, when we only live once, and I think that's there's there's a there's a lot of lessons that you can learn from both sport and cancer. And I think that I used to say to people that sport's a choice. You don't have to go training. The amount of athletes you say, I need to go training, I need to go training, I have to do training. It's like, you don't have to do anything. It's your choice to do it. You need to remember it's your choice. But with cancer, it's not your choice. You can't just say, you know, what happened through chemotherapy? You know, I, I, it's not like a time trial. You know, I've had enough now. This hurts too much. I'm, I'm going to stop. So I, I've often seen these these two races in my life where there's one that was always trying to go faster in sport and there was the one that was trying to slow the tumor down. And I think that I probably learned more how to become a human being from the, the hospital than I did from, from sport. So I, I think that from the outside, yeah, it looked like I was having all these amazing experiences, but if I'm being honest, I probably didn't savor them at the moment because I was too busy living in my head. And I think that's 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 a big lesson I've learned. Oh, David, I, I, listeners won't be able to see, but I was there was so much of that that I was just like, yes, 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 <laughs> this is what I I believe. Um, so you know, if I could tell anyone starting out on their athletic career, when you look back, you don't, you know, you're proud of the wins, but you're probably mm. more proud of the days that you didn't win when you stuck it out and and finished yeah. on a bad day. And one of the mantras actually you know, reflecting a little bit on what you're saying about, about you don't choose to suffer, you, you know, athletes choose to suffer. And, and that was one of the things I used to say when I was hurting in a race, that suffering is a privilege and I'm choosing to make myself suffer and people with cancer don't get that. And that was probably my most powerful mental yeah. self-talk strategy in, in the middle of an Ironman. Um, That's very powerful. Yeah, it it's is. It's very, and, very powerful. And not a lot of people would understand that, I don't think. Is a lot of athletes well, I don't really understand. But you were seeing it as well firsthand, which Oh yeah, which and, is and usually powerful. 
no yeah so you know just reminding myself that I have a body that is fit and healthy and allows me to create that pain because I'm it's doing what I want it to do is and you know when I'd leave work at seven o'clock at night and it was dark and I'd drag myself out on a run around the ring road I don't you know all you it's so easy the self-talk to just say oh, I just want to be on the sofa why do I have to do this it's wet it's not even a nice run route And then I'd just think of someone I'd seen who was stuck in a hospital bed having chemo. And, and it's, oh, it's such a powerful motivator. Yeah. I think when, yeah, if more people could realize how lucky we are to have, to have bodies that do what we want it to, I, 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 yeah, we, we, I don't know. I kind of think I'm waffling a little bit, but lockdown was a little mini opportunity. But now the world's getting back to normal. We're, people, you know, that, that's the thing. People forget and... You know, everyone used to say, oh, will lockdown make people better people? Will people become more compassionate? And I used to say, no. And they're like, no, oh, but surely they're going through some form of adversity and loss and trauma. I said, yeah, but people just forget and they just block it out. Okay, not everyone. That's a little bit of an injustice to a lot of everyone, but but most people do. And, and I did after my first surgery, after my second surgery. It was probably after my third surgery that paralyzed me that I really started to be like, oh, wow, okay, this is, this is quite serious. Um, and I think that's where people will just go back to to, to normal post post lockdown. You can see it already. You know, people are aggressive. They're angry. Mm. They're they're in human doing mode. Everyone's do 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 do. Got to get this done. They're all attached to outcomes. They're living in their minds. And and I've seen this mass. You'll see this as well. I've seen it hugely in the radiotherapy. Probably this is probably the biggest I've ever seen it. That when I go to radiotherapy, everyone in there had kind of gone into human being mode because the, there was no, they were, they had to detach from the do, 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 because they were facing a fight for their life. And, but there was an overriding, most people were happy and they were grateful and they had emotions of joy. Okay. There was emotions of fear and maybe some sadness. Very, I didn't really see much anger down there. It was mostly people who were just very scared and and worried but they had a lot of joy a lot of gratitude there was a lot of there was a lot of nice emotions in that place for somewhere that's quite challenging then i'd mm. go back up onto the street and everyone was angry and everyone was just and i was like wow i was like this is unbelievable that everyone in the cancer ward seems happy and they're smiling and everyone up on the street is angry and, and caught up in other stuff and i was like wow how is it how we've 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 somehow, in the evolution of mankind, managed to lose our attachment to our values, our you know, our character strengths, what's really important in life, and we've been sucked into this uh, this sort of false life that appears all around us now that says you know that we're not going to be happy until we get the next thing, and actually people don't understand that happiness comes from within, and it's mm. it's being grateful for the simple things. I yeah I, I I agree absolutely. Um, so you you've had uh, how many surgeries? Six six six, six 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 now. Yeah, on on my cervical spine. So through here, through the side of the back, and then down through the the back as well. So as far as I understand, the the first one you were racing as an elite athlete, and you were told that you needed surgery to save your life. But that that might result in paralysis. Is that is that right? Yes, yeah. So there, the, I guess the risk because it sits in the spinal cord from sort of here to here. So C C three, C four, C five, six area, 
and the, the risks of going into the cord are, are paralysis. If you don't take it out, it will grow and it'll crush the cord, which results in paralysis. So it's you're it's interesting because with this tumor, you're facing the journey of tumor, but you're also facing the journey of spinal cord injury. So you're kind of having to wear two two hats. And and that that's that's become challenging because as much as I'm trying to learn about why the tumor grows and what it's doing and, and, and that side of things, I'm also trying to learn about the spinal cord. So you're you're almost having to balance neurology and oncology. And what what's the hardest part for you with that? For for me, it's the spinal cord injury. I think uh, because I I know I'm mentally tough enough to get through the surgeries and do the rehabilitation because I've done it. And this is the thing. I think sometimes uncertainty causes anxiety. But once we know what's happening, we become a little bit more, we have the tools and we can go into, the, I guess, a state that means we can deal with it a bit better. For, for me, the, the spinal cord injury is something that I'm living with 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There is no cure. This, this is what it is. And I don't know fully, I probably need to do more work with a psychologist, but I, I still don't fully accept that. I, I really struggle with the spinal cord injury. The The tumor was something that, okay, the day of diagnosis is horrible. The day of surgery, treatments, all these things are horrible. But in between all those days, you, you can, depending on what cancer you have or what tumor you have, but for me personally, I could go and live my life. So I still managed to go and win a world championships mm -hmm after my surgery after my second surgery i i went and rode up mont von two I, I did the documentary i i still raced for great britain on the bike it wasn't until after the third surgery that paralyzed me that my life away from on call away from tumor became completely different and then i was in this spinal cord injury hospital i was now a spinal cord injury patient i was now disabled i was now i'd lost my independence i'd lost my identity my independence I needed people to bath me. I needed people to help me do the bathroom. I had to manually do bowel movements with my hand. Uh, I lost sexual function. I lost the ability to tie my shoelaces. I would pee myself in the street. I would poo myself in shops. All of this stuff, I was like, what is this? And then at the same time, having to deal with scans and the likelihood of the tumor might come back. And I was just like, this is... It's so overwhelming, uh, and I had quite a few meltdowns. I still do, um, but it's usually to relate it to the spinal cord injury. The, the tumor, because the tumor, in, in my mind, it is what it is. There's, I can't. There's nothing I could have done in my life to have changed that. That, that was something that I was either born with. It was either a gene that polymorphized and, and went wrong. There was something out of my control. But the spinal cord injury, that was that that was something that could have been massively prevented. And that's something that I really struggle with because ultimately it's it's about quality of life and you know, not almost not quantity. You know, people can live to a hundred, but they don't actually ever live. Mm. And I would I've lost probably the best years of my life with being paralyzed. Um, with all the things I wanted to do, I've, I've been paralyzed for, for four years now. And, and there's so much stuff that, that was taken away from me with the paralysis. But in the the work I do to reframe it was that actually I've also lived more 
since being paralyzed because it's made me more awake. It's made me more aware. It's a very, very costly lesson to learn. Um, but I, I feel that it's probably, it's made me delve inside my head a little bit more. Now, if I had the choice to go through life on autopilot and asleep, but be fully healthy, I would mm. probably take that over being, being awakened. Um, I would tell myself in my head, I wouldn't as a coping mechanism, but I think if I was being truthful, if I could wake up tomorrow and not have the spinal cord injury, that if I had to choose to wake up tomorrow, you can either have the tumor or the spinal cord injury. I would take the tumor. Um, that, that's and, me personally. And at the moment, you, are you paralyzed down the left hand side of your body? So you can't yeah, move. So, uh, can you move that at all? Nothing. If we, I can get it on the camera for those that are watching. So it's just nothing. It's like yeah. that on my hand. That's it. And um, and bladder and bowel function is do you it that's gone as well. Gone. Everything so basically everything so when when you're paralyzed, people often think, oh, the movement of the limbs, the worst thing. It's actually not. There's yeah. a whole list of other things because the, the central nervous system controls everything in our body. So temperature regulation, there's times where I just even right now, my whole body feels really weird. I'm I'm classified as a C4 tetraplegic. So I have uh, no movement on the left side, but I've lost all my sensory system on the right side. So I can't feel on the right side. So I can't feel hot or cold. I can't feel sharp or blunt. So basically if I'm, everything here down is, is in a way is, I don't like to use the word dead, um, but it, it's not working properly. It's almost like the, it's almost like my brain is speaking English, but my body's speaking Chinese. So they're not, the signals are not, they're not communicating with each other and that, that causes huge amounts of trauma daily. Uh, and and then it's also a constant reminder of the tumor. Uh, so it's, it's this constant, you're just constantly managing stuff. And the only escape that I have from that is getting my mind into like a flow state. So it's actually getting on the bike, it's getting in the pool and swimming. It's, it's being creative or connecting with nature. That's the only times that, that I get that escape from the disability where so everything how, else how do you how do you cycle how do you how do you actually get on a bike so it's hard, yeah it's hard to get on the bike um, i've worked out a way to do it where i sort of just lift the bike up and then slide it through and i climb myself on and i drag my arm on strap it on i've got a special orthotic that i wear on my leg that's like a prosthetic leg and then i can get up and i can go and cycle 100 100 miles um, I, 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 sw I swam the Ironman distance with one arm. In, Have you in got Jamaica. an Ironman on the agenda, David? Uh, you know, I, I'd love to do one. I'd love to do one. <laughs> I'd love to do one. I often thought, uh, yeah, I'd like, I've done the swim and I've done the bike. I did the run. I couldn't do the run. So I'd have to get a Zimmer frame or some form of walking aid and then just walk the, walk the marathon. Can you can you swim without um, support without a pulley? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 just swimming yeah. one-sided. Yeah, I just I just taught myself how to swim with one arm because I can't really use the leg either. So I can kick with my right leg and swim with my right arm. And I, I did I did the Ironman distance in one hour forty. So it, I was slow, but uh, I was I was within I was in the cutoff times, and that's with no training. I just got in and did it with no training, really. So. And what, like, do you still, can you still get the same endorphins from exercise? Can you still push yourself as hard as you used to be able to? So, so, so this is a really interesting one. So 
I can't, I'm not the athlete I used to be. So I had to accept that. So when I go out on my bike, literally everyone and his dog overtakes me. So I'm not going at the speed I used to be able to, to, to go at. But I still get the same endorphin rush. I still get the same neurotransmitters that are released in the brain. I still get the same benefits of exercise, although it's not how it used to be. Uh, and how this has benefited me, I, I was basically, so I, I've accepted the situation. I've accepted this is what it is. Okay, then I've said to myself, right, I, I can still go out and achieve goals. Okay, I'm not going to go and ride at 25 mile an hour for whatever amount of time, but I can go out and I say, you know what, I'm going to go and ride 100 miles today. It might be slow, but I can still do it and I can still get into a flow state. And as soon as you get into that state, the brain has a cascade of neurochemicals, you know, dopamine, serotonin, and andamide, endorphins. These are all feel-good chemicals. So you can get that from just getting off your sofa and going walking if that's your limit, as long as you set the goal, as long as the goal is clear. So I get up and I just got this clear goal, okay, it's just getting on my bike. Let's say I'm going to get on my bike, I'm going to ride for an hour. And I feel just as good then as I did when I was racing at the top level because it's I've been clear about the goal. And on a personal level, I'm not competing with anyone else. I'm not comparing myself to anyone else. All of the egos can overtake me when they're out there. I'm just happy to be out there. So I, I do get exactly the same rush of chemicals in my brain as I that I've always done as an athlete. It's so just that was at something a you, speed. Sorry, that, that was something you um I rewatched the documentary last last week and that was something you talked about when you were in your recovery from from your I think it was your second surgery maybe yeah. um and you'd been through it once and and um you you were basically having to build up from not being able to do anything and you set yourself this challenge of climbing Mount one two on a bike six months later which came turned into climbing it three times on a bike yeah. but that's an aside but um one of the things you were saying was that you had and I wonder whether it's whether you'd taught yourself to um, accept that you could get the same endorphins from doing something that was previously very simple, like getting yourself dressed, or whether that was something that came naturally. Was it, you know, because it, it was, was it actually something that you, you felt the first time you got yourself dressed? You're like, yes, I did it. I feel like I've done. Or was it something that you told yourself? you were going to view it as a huge achievement? Yeah, good question. I, I think initially it was just something I did and was like, wow, that feels great. And and also I knew that I had to do it because if I didn't do it, then I would just be lying in a hospital bed for, for, for months or years. I might never walk again. So I had that sort of like driver that I want to walk again. I want to get out. I want to get back to sport. But as, as soon as I just sat up, and lay back down it's like wow you, you get a huge rush you get that you've achieved something small so all of a sudden you get the rush of endorphins i wasn't aware of the i guess the neurobiology behind it at that time but i just felt great and then i would do it again and it felt great and it felt great and then it wasn't until 2016 when i started to study more around positive psychology psychology neurobiology that i started to realize that actually there's a there's a mechanism behind that um, from a gentleman called Mihai Csikszentmihalyi who studied flow states and that's what he, he said if you if you're very clear on your on your goals and like the micro goals so even just you know you can have every hour of your day can have purpose and that purpose can all be attained to something that's greater than yourself 
but the goals are, if they're just very very small goals they, they can be rewarded and, I, and i've spoken to so many people when i was in hospital and they're just like i'm like what's your goal today and they're like you know what i just want to try and move my finger that is it i just want to try and move my index finger because that can be life-changing for someone who's who's paralyzed from the neck down and that's their only clear goal for that day and then that's linked to a bigger thing and and for me, I started to realize as this journey's gone on that I get I get just as big a rush actually getting out the door and getting on my bike than the actual session itself. Because the hardest thing for me, and probably for most people, is just getting off the sofa. You know, just once you've done that, that friction that just that your brain's telling you, oh, let's just stay here, it's too much effort. But if you can get over that friction, the rewards on the other side are amazing. And I think that's so important for people who are especially going through cancer. And it's like, you know, I want to exercise, but they can have a million excuses why I don't want to get off the sofa because they, they can use that, you know, well, my cancer, my tumor, you know, I'm going through this, I'm going through that. It's just easier to sit here. And then you, you're more likely to eat comfort food, which is then going to make you feel worse. And actually just getting up and moving the body can be, can be the greatest mental boost that, that we can do and and I think that that's really important that's something I've always tried to tell myself and I battle with that now you know that like even today I'm like you know I, sh I know I, I'm probably going my bike but the friction there's like well it's kind of easier if I just have a coffee and I can do some studying and I'm not really training for anything so I don't really have to go out unless I want to go out but I know if I go out and even ride for 30 minutes I'll come back and I'll feel amazing and mm -hmm. I think that's where it's so, so key. And all I've done is just change the goals. So rather than thinking, oh, I need to win a world title or make it to a, a, a team or, or whatever it may be, I'm like, you know, I just want to go and ride my bike because it's it, it's just so good for your mental health, your physical health. And especially when you're when you're dealing with something that, that we see and deal with every day, that, that you know, that, that can start to confine you and identify you and then you can start to be that person and I think what's really interesting for me is that if you have cancer or a spinal cord injury, that, that's not who you are. It's something you have, but it's not who you are. And we shouldn't really try to identify to that, that that's what we have. And, and, I, and, I, and I've really tried hard to work on that because I feel for me personally, that's quite important that I remember, you know, who is David Smith or, you know, who is Lucy Gossage? You're not, you know, you're not... You're not you're not an oncologist and an Ironman. Oncology is what you do, but it's not who you are as a person. Like those values, and I think that's key. When we know that, then we can we can be resilient because we know what our values are and our you know where what our guiding principles are in life. And then that's how is that? I mean that that must be hard though with identity because you can tell yourself who you are. You are David Smith whoever david smith is but people you know you're you're in in the public eye you're david smith who's got this this tumor that keeps coming back and to joe Bloggs in the street you've got an obvious visible disability mm -hmm. so how do you separate what you feel and, and the external kind of perception perhaps not to the close friends who obviously no, know yeah, you for yeah, who you yeah. are but yeah and that's hard and I think that comes down to, to judgment. As human beings, we're programmed to judge. I think it's part of our negative bias from evolution that you go out on the street and, and I'm assuming that people are judging me because I'm disabled. And I'm assuming if anyone looks at me, they're looking at me because I'm disabled. And, and, and I've, got, I've tried to be a bit more compassionate with myself and, and for just society to be more compassionate. But I think that 
it's probably one of the hardest things I've had to deal with. Uh, and I think it's something I have to really work on and continually work on. And I think I don't want to identify. And I know, yes, to society around me looking in, they're going to be like, that guy's disabled. He's the guy who's maybe got a, a medal or he's an athlete or he's the tumor guy. But I'm like, no, no, that's, that's stuff that I've, I've done or the stuff I've, you know, that I, I do, but it's not who I am. And if you speak to me and you get to know me, then you'll know that, you know, that I'm a funny guy. I'm, I like humor. I'm loyal. I'm grateful. And I have all these different uh, values that I stand for and, and my guiding principles in life. But in, in society, we very, very, because again, we're in human doing mode, we very rarely pause to actually get to know somebody and actually ask questions about, you know, who they are. If you think if you meet a stranger, one of the first questions is, oh, what do you do? It doesn't really matter what I do. It's like, who, who am I? Who am I? Get to know me, not what I do. And that will tell you more about me than painting a picture of, of what I do. I must be this certain person. And, you know, sometimes when you meet someone and they think you're an athlete, their general assumption is, oh, you're stupid. You're not educated, <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, you're stupid. Yeah. And, and, and that's, that, but that's their perception of the lens they're looking through. And I think we need to just do so much more of this work and change these narratives and, and again, when you meet someone with cancer, you know, like I'm never looking for sympathy. I'm, I'm not looking for people to go, oh, poor you. And, and and I get that sometimes people go, oh, you're such an inspiration and poor you. And I was like, well, no, I'm, you know, I'm, it's not, I'm doing what I do. And, and you know, that you're a human, I'm a human. We have all these different things. Um, if I do inspire you, that's fantastic. I'm, I'm humbled about that, but I don't do it to be an inspiration and, so I, I think it's, yeah, it's, it's very hard and it's a very difficult balance because I can do all the inner work. We can do it as individuals, but the majority of society are not doing that inner work. So they're running around and we have to yeah. manage them as well. Do you know what that's like? It's really interesting because one of the, you know, obviously as an oncologist, they sometimes think, how would I react if I was in this situation? And actually the thing that scares me, I think the most about getting you know, a, a life-threatening condition is people talking about me behind my backs and pitying me or, you know, saying, isn't she brave? Isn't she amazing? Isn't it sad? And I I, I kind of so imagine how I wouldn't want to tell people yeah. because I wouldn't want that. I would just want to be Lucy, who's yes. still Lucy, whether or not she's got cancer. Yeah, or whether you're in a wheelchair or not in a wheelchair. And I often say to people, I'm still David. I'm still... Like I've not changed, I'm still, okay, I've evolved as a person. I'm not the same person I was when I was 20. I've, I've evolved into, to, to, I would hope to think a little bit more of an enlightened human being. I'm still very much on the on that journey, but um, but I, I, I'm with you on that. And I think that's very challenging that people don't, because then you're starting to identify with it. Then it becomes your identity. Then people are like, well, poor you, or, or be positive, stay positive. And, or everything's going to be okay and all these narratives and then I, I try to realize okay these people don't mean any harm but before I know it then my whole identity becomes everything I do is about is about that mm. uh, and that becomes quite challenging and then the problem is then is there's no actual freedom for you because as human beings for us to flourish and be happy we want to be free of our of our mind and our thoughts and realize they're not but if we're constantly being reminded by everyone around us how inspirational we are, how oh, so, I'm so sorry you have cancer, I'm so sorry you have a spinal injury, then it's like planting seeds in our brain and then those seeds grow and before we know it, our inner conversation is all about 
that as well. So there's there's no real escape. And I think to have that true freedom is to be free from the mind and be able to be present and be where your feet are. And that's the beauty of sport, whether it's going and doing a park run, whether it's just going down to the gym, it very much puts you into the moment. And I think that's really important. Do you know what? There's um, a, a wonderful uh, friend of mine called Sue, who I met through Five Kiwi actually, and she died um, a couple of uh, probably six weeks ago. Um, and she um, she got diagnosed with with stage four bowel cancer in her seventies, <sighs> and she never run at all, never run through her life. And she saw the flyer for the groups, um, and she said she was in hospital, had big surgery, couldn't even get out of bed to go to the toilet, kind of jokingly said, when I get out of here, I'm going to do that. And she turned up, and she she kind of built herself up, and she walked, and then she ran. And one of the things that she said was, when people ask me how I am, I don't talk about the bad stuff. I just tell them that I've started running. And that, you know, that's that's Great. a 70-year-old, a 71-year-old losing sport to, to take away. She was Sue, who was in her 70s, running 5Ks, not Sue with stage 4 bowel cancer. Yeah. And I think um, that's, so, that's so important for her health and for everyone around her as well, because then she has purpose and her philosophy is like, well, I'm, I've got something to go to and there's my community there and people who understand me as well. And I think that was one thing I really loved about radiation. I made friends there who are friends for life and we, we kind of just got each other and we mm. used to laugh about just life and what people would say to us we'd be like oh, what, what did someone say to you today or oh, they said this <laughs> so yeah i heard this <laughs> as well and you know and, and i you know my good friend stoney who was there he's a street artist and his release wasn't sport it was art so he got into a flow state and expressed himself through art and there was one day i woke up on instagram and he'd actually gone out and painted his whole house <laughs> and he is he is a brain tumor and um i knew why he had done it like i didn't need to uh, and i just messaged him hey man i'm here if you need me because I knew that he'd obviously had a, he'd gone through a bit of a rough spot and gone out and he just literally street arted his whole house. <laughs> but I got it. And, and, and that's the same. It's, it'd probably be the same for me. I'd get on a bike, you know, Sue would go to ride. So it's a coping mechanism. And I think we, when we have them in place, then they're, they're, they're very important to us and it gives us that community and, and I guess something to look forward to as well. Yeah, that was definitely what she said. Um, so you've done so I, yeah you've done lots of psychology over the years and I, I assume you did some before before your diagnosis as well through through elite sport. Yeah, well, I, I, I did, I did. Um, I wouldn't, you know, probably very rudimentary basic stuff. It didn't really delve into to the deep stuff about trying to find purpose and philosophy and why. And I think it depends. I guess what psychologists you work with and what the area they've studied. I guess for me, I did a lot of martial arts as a kid. So I did karate for over, you know, since the age of seven to 18. So that was a very good, strong foundation of psychology. And, and sport teaches you psychology anyway. You learn how to, mm. and I think one of the one of the biggest learns I learned as a youngster was how to lose. So in, in karate, you, you, you get knocked down, you get hit, you get punched, you have to get yourself back up. And you're actually learning how to be resilient there. And I always think- You're learning that, how to be chumbawamba. <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically at that young age. And I think that a lot of the ways that I've dealt with the diagnoses, and again, this is just a personal thing for me, it wouldn't work for everyone, is that I almost see it as a fight, that I see it's going to the dojo, you're facing your opponent, and you have these this toolkit inside yourself as if you were going to play chess, it's a strategy, the moves you make. And one of the things martial arts taught me how to do was to breathe. 
and this might sound really crazy because the first thing we do in life is inhale and the last thing we do is exhale and we breathe. It's an automatic thing, but very few of us actually are taught how to breathe and know how to breathe properly. And it has a huge effect on the autonomic nervous system, on the stress response. So one of the early lessons I got was like, if, if you start to get panicked in a fight, you start to get scared, you start to feel your body moving into a survival mode, you need to ground yourself and use your breathing to ground yourself. So one of the, the of all the psychology stuff I've done, actually learning how to breathe in a high pressured situation has been one of the most important things because then the breath has a direct control over the autonomic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system affects your state. So I find myself, if I was going into oncology meetings, into neurosurgery meetings, I would prepare the same way as if I was going to stand at the start line of a sports race. And that was ultimately just to connect with the breathing. It's the quickest way to get out of your mind and, and calm the autonomic nervous system down is, is to go to your breathing. And you can see that when someone gets stressed, they become start breathing upper chest upper straight this all gets tight and actually if we slow everything down and learn how to breathe more from deeper down in our stomach or diaphragm we get more oxygen in we our body utilizes the system of it and it works more effectively and efficiently so of all the lessons i learned you know i was getting taught that as a seven-year-old in karate and that's something that i didn't actually realize at the time that i before every surgery i i went and I'd close my eyes and I'd visualize myself standing at the edge of the, 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 the mat and the dojo about to face an opponent. And if you go in angry and trying to fight it, you'll lose. You need, you need to stay calm. You need to stay alert. You need to stay in control. And it's the same, it's the same in, in, the, in the cancer environment, okay, where it's, it's a much higher risk environment, but ultimately the body's still reacting the same way to the stress. The body doesn't know the difference between the stress. It's just that it is just a stress. You're presented with a stress response and the body will react in a way. So I feel that what we've learned in sport, we could actually bring back. And I think this is why it's really important what you guys are doing as well, because the lessons that people are learning coming to do the sport, they'll get a little bit out of breath. Okay, we need to manage that. And then actually when they go to into the hospital setting, they can bring those lessons across and, and use them. So my experience with psychology was more not from psychologists, but actually just being in the sports arena itself and working things out. Mm. Do you do you ever get do you ever get angry at, at your situation? I could lie and say no, I'm this <laughs> enlightened monk, but <laughs> I would be lying and it would be false. Yes, I do. Absolutely. I, I uh my, if I had to pull back the layers of the onion, then absolutely. I was a very extroverted person before my injury, uh, before the paralysis, and now I'm very introverted. But I struggle to leave the house on lots of times. And then I say, oh, it's because I'm an introvert. But actually, it's it's not. It's because I'm para paralyzed and disabled and just walking down the street now is, is a traumatic experience for me. I, I have anxiety over doing the bathroom. What if I go out? I went out couple of weeks ago uh, into London and I almost peed myself so now I have this toilet anxiety about leaving the house so um, as long as I'm safe and I stay in my little safe zone but we all to know that you don't grow if you're in your comfort zone the whole time and the best we live most when we're out of it mm. and, and I, yeah I, I, I get there's days where I wake up and I'm just angry and, and but then when those days arise 
I've got coping mechanisms. And I think this is the thing. It's, it's okay to be negative. It's okay to be angry. These are human emotions. And when you're going, when you're going through some really tough times, you're going to, you're going to have these emotions. I think for me, what I've learned is that is to plan. What do I do when I have these emotions? And the emotions are really powerful and they happen so quickly. It's hard for us to, to regulate them, but we, we can get better at it and we can try, but I think we have to be compassionate and say, and this was one of my gripes when people kept saying to me, well, just be positive, be positive, Dave. I was like, well, but then you're telling me that it's not okay to be negative. And when I have a negative day, like everyone, a lot of people around me fall down. They don't allow me to have a negative day. They get really upset with me and, and get annoyed. And I'm like, why are you getting annoyed? I'm having a negative day. Oh, and they, they can't handle that. And I'm like, well, I'm only human. Mm. And all humans have low days. So I started to think, okay, what do I do on the on the low day when I when I'm angry? Okay, right, maybe I call this guy and have a chat with him, or read this book, or listen to this podcast, revisit my values, or maybe just jump out and go for a swim or a, or a bike ride, or you know. So I have all these little coping mechanisms that are there and tools, but um, I don't think there's anybody who's alive who doesn't get angry at certain points or has emotions oh, and. Uh, or you know or feels negative or scared or wants to cry and you know there's days where i just want to stand on the top of a building and just scream <laughs> and and what um you know sport now to you it sounds like it's it's your savior savior but it's also so intensely hard to get out to to, to actually find a way to do it how, yeah. how do you balance that and what what does sport mean to you do for you yeah. now yeah and that's the hardest thing with the spinal cord injury because Spinal cord injuries made it hard to access my biggest coping mechanism. And, and that's something that if I think too much about it, I don't do it. I've just got to go out and go out my bike and go and not think about it. When I start to have the conversation in my head, well, then, I, then I'm going to procrastinate and not do it. Uh, it is where I find solace. It's where I, I don't think I like, I wouldn't say I hide there, but I find peace. I find when I do it, I leave my bio, I leave my disability, I leave the tumor, I leave everything behind, and I just go and I just enjoy the movement of it all, and I love it. I'm not cycling thinking I want to be a world champion. There's still a part of me in there that's like I want to get to the world championships. I want to compete, and then I start to feel like a little bit of tension building, and then I'm like, you know what? Just let go of that. If it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. And then another medal will not make me any more happier. Another race will not make me any more happier. I can only be happy when I do my own inner work and that's just going out and doing sport. And that's do you still look at me. your numbers? Do you have your, you know, do you, do you look at your power and kind of like, oh, you know, it's good this week? Or? You know, at the moment I'm riding completely blind. I don't have a parameter. I don't have a, I don't, I don't have a Garmin on my bike. I, I, click the button on my watch that I have to do with my tongue. Yeah. Um, and then I ride just to record it because I enjoy looking at Strava. Yeah. But I but I don't look at the numbers because the numbers are it's heartbreaking when I look at the power numbers. And yeah. but then I then I reframe it and I'm like, well actually the fact that I'm even walking is a miracle. The fact that I can actually get on a bike is a miracle. And so what if I can't ride at certain watches anymore and you know, it's nice to hear you say that that you do appreciate how you know anyone able-bodied person because a lot of people that listen to this 
are not affected by cancer and mm -hmm. and and actually that's one of the really really great things that i i hope we can achieve in this podcast is normalizing yeah. the conversations about cancer but for someone who has never encountered adversity you know perhaps lockdown is the biggest adversity for a lot of us yeah to imagine not being able to move one side of the body, not being able to feel the other side of the body, not being able to control your bladder and bowels independently, yet still managing to swim 3.8k or get yourself out on the bike. I mean, that is that's just incomprehensible. And and it's it. I'm glad that you can deep down appreciate how much of an achievement that that alone is. Yeah, and I think that's the difference between internal appreciation and external so i guess in a lot of ways in life is that we chase that external validation we chase that external thing whether that's you know we want to be an iron man because we want people to identify with that we're an iron man we'll, we'll put the tattoo in our calf and so everyone can see that we're an iron man and we've done and we want to tell people we've done an iron man and we want to tell people yeah, i can hold 400 watts for 20 minutes you, you watch your ftp and all this stuff mm -hmm. and that, ultimately that's all coming from the ego and if we're really truthful with ourselves and we sit down and we have a conversation deep with ourselves, we might not like what we hear with ourselves. And this, you don't have to share this with anyone. I've got it in here. Uh, and, and we ask her why, you know, so why do you do the Iron Man? Okay. Well, why do you get the tattoo? What the, but not but the real why. And we go all the way back to that child stood in the play group who was maybe excluded from the group. You're not in the cool group. And as human beings, we all want to belong. We all want to be loved. We all want to be appreciated. You know, Masseloff's needs of appreciation and respect. And we can dive into the why behind it. And then if we're chasing that why our whole life, then we might never really feel fully, fully happy. But when we actually realize that we can switch that to a more autotelic response and more internal goal of like, well, I'm doing it for my own personal reasons. It's not for people out with to look in then, and then the ego kind of dies and then you do it for the right things and then you can be happy. If doesn't matter, even if you're coming last, you can be happy. But for sure, I, you know, I see the, the guys out there smashing the bikes, you know, they're not, they're not riding on world tour teams, you know, they're, but they're, they're so angry and it's all to get maybe a KOM on Strava or whatever, <laughs> but, at the end of the day, no one really cares. And the world mm. just keeps moving. And we're a very, very small dot in the universe. And no one really matters. Uh, no one really cares by, by yourself uh, at the end of the day. And I think it's reassessing that and, and having those conversations with yourself saying, you know, well, who who's riding today? Is it my ego or is it is it me? And mm. um, that's one thing that I've lost. You know, for sure, I was an athlete at one point. I had it. And then that's the reason I know it because I had it. And I know the reason. I was doing these things and I know the reason that why I want to win a medal and all of these things were from my childhood. I know all I've done, I've done that work and I didn't like the conversations and I didn't like what I was telling myself. And I thought, well, actually, okay, this is good. It's good work because I can let that die. And it doesn't mean I'm not going to go out and try and go as fast as I can, but it's more from an internal point, not from this trying to get this external validation or be accepted by a group of people or to be, you know, to be part of a tribe or whatever. And that that's that's hard. That's um, I guess in a lot of ways that's self-actualization. And that's, that's that's pretty tough. 
So yeah, that I mean that is one of the biggest things. I, I it, so I, I I have done a bit of sports psychology actually, and, mm. and the biggest lesson I think that I've learned from that is finding your why. And yeah. um, you know, for so much of what you said, David, just when I and I look back at you know I was this career ladder climbing person, just getting to the top without thinking about what the top was and where it was, and then I fell into triathlon, and it just made me take a step back and. You know, I'm I'm way down the career ladder, but I, I'm on a ladder I want to be on, and 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 that yeah, finding your why, and and oh, so I think we do, we've just got the same. Well, yeah, so much yeah. of what you said has resonated with me hugely. Um, we are coming up to an hour. I promised there wouldn't be more than an hour. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I knew I knew I could. I mean, we could definitely talk for for several more. Um, I think just just to finish, if if someone was facing huge surgery that was going to entail um, a, a lengthy recovery, what what would you tell to that tell them kind of in the couple of weeks beforehand? You know, the, there's a lot of things you can do and can't do, and I think this is true with anything: is that there's the controllables and the uncontrollables, and it's to sit down and write down, okay, what do I have control over here, and what's uncontrollable. And it's almost trying not to, if you say to someone, don't think of the uncontrollables, that's all they're going to think about. It's like, don't think of the pink elephant and they'll just focus on that. It's, it's, it's to sort of highlight and be aware of what's uncontrollable and then to really focus in on what's controllable. What can I do? Okay, I can get, I can do good sleep hygiene. This And this is the lessons from sports. I can do good sleep hygiene because if I get good sleep, I'm going to just feel better. I can eat good foods. I can do the inner work. I can learn how to do breath stuff. So if I'm breathing well, I'm probably going to sleep better, which means I'm going to eat better, which means I'm going to move better. So it's looking after the, the machine and the body. And we, we can work on three things. You know, we can work on our mind, our craft, and our, and our physical body. So you can still do all that work. And what that does is, it again, it, it keeps you busy. It gives you a focus. And ultimately, be be compassionate to yourself, be kind, practice self-care, you know, in a world where we're very, it's all about being macho and being, or it's all, I think we, we need to practice self-care as, as a society. And certainly if you're going to, if you're about to face a huge surgery, there's a lot of stuff you can do. And I think in that buildup, it's very easy to be pulled into your mind and, and it's, it's to try and think, okay, when I'm pulled into my mind with the what ifs, what if this happens, what if that happens? It's to, it's to, you know, to have practices that whether it's going out for a walk, meeting up with some friends, you know, maybe continuing your life as normal as possible. You know, maybe that is going to the swimming pool and doing a swim. It's, it's basically trying to stay present as much as possible and, and, and be in the now. And, and, you know, for me, again, this is personal. I think education is power, knowledge is power and wisdom is, is where we want ultimately get to get to. And, and, you know, having good conversations with people, surrounding your people yourself with wise people is great. And having those moving conversations, reading books, learning about stuff that that's. Um, I remember seeing a, a sticker on the back of a car in Jamaica, and it said, "Small minds talk about people. Uh, great minds talk." And what is it? Small minds talk about other people. Mediocre. Mediocre talk about events, and great minds talk about ideas. And it say was say that again. So say small, that. small small minds talk about people. Mediocre minds talk about average. events. Average minds talk about events. Great minds talk about uh, ideas. ideas. Mm. And it was all, it was on the back of a Rasta car, and that always resonates with me. That okay, who are my friends that talk about other people? And you get them on the phone, and all they'll do is talk about someone else. 
and then there'll be other people who talk about all these just like amazing things that nourish you and that's where i say surround yourself with those people because you yeah. you know especially if you're going into a major surgery you want to go in there if you know feeling feeling good and, and enriched and, and like you've already hit on it connect with your why connect with your why it's the most to have purpose in life is the most powerful thing and what you're facing post-surgery in that lengthy rehab when it's really hard when you're really challenged you always go back to your why and your purpose and and that will that will serve you very good and i mean how many people have done that work how many people know their why and their purpose it's, it's yeah. a, that's, that's I, a I, I mean i think that's one of the the most powerful lessons that i've taken from sport that transforms that can transform the way the way we live our life uh, but david you've been uh yeah and honestly I, I could have definitely carried on talking to you for a long time um i will um yeah we'll we'll share some links um but thank you so much for joining us um no, thank i can't you. tell you how much i've enjoyed chatting with you um and yeah we'll have to get you down to a 5k your way um when yeah start. absolutely um, and you know and for anyone who is facing stuff you know reach out to people talk to people it's you know it's a problem shares a problem half is it what they say it's, it's just you know don't don't do it on your own it's a journey where you you do need support and the support is there and i didn't realize that i tried to do it on my own for a very long time and it didn't it didn't work out wise words um, it sounds like we might see you at an Ironman as well someday. So um. no, yeah, no, I'm not gonna, don't hold me to that. Maybe who knows? <laughs> you told the wrong person. You let that yeah, one out to the wrong I know, person. I, <laughs> I did realise right, that after I said it. Wow, um, I cannot tell you how much I enjoyed talking to David. Um, honestly, I, I feel like so much of what he said um, resonated with me and is so core to to my values. Um, and and if you could see my face when we were talking, I think you'd you'd realise just how much I agreed with so much of what he's saying and just how powerful those words were. Um, Finding a why, it's its something I'm so, I believe so passionately is, is really important. And actually for me, um, sport has helped me find my why. Um, coming off the career ladder, not simply climbing to the top. Um, he talks, he talks about, um, you know, realizing it's more important to know where you want to go than just to get to somewhere, whatever that destination is, as quick as possible. Finding purpose, finding, finding his true identity, who's the real David. Um, I think one of the things that I've taken from this on a personal level is actually retiring from elite sport, how lucky I was to be able to choose to retire on my terms when I wanted to, not because I was forced to. And and, and I guess that's something that David's really had to, to grapple with. Um, one of the things I think that I've the, the biggest things that I've taken from this is the importance of of not being in human doing mode, but in 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 human being mode, and um, I've never really heard of it like that or thought of it like that. But that is, um, yeah, that's also a really really important life lesson, um, I think. And thank you, David, for um, for helping me reflect on that. Um, before we started chatting on air um, or recording, we were we were talking and we both agreed that, um, you know, there's all these superheroes and in inverted commas celebrities out there. But actually, um, if you want to re see real inspiration, all you need to do is walk onto a cancer ward and there you will see people, normal people, um, finding their way through um, challenges that 
that many of us can't imagine. Um, and the more we share these stories through your podcast, the more um, the more passionately I believe that the true heroes are lurking in um, all walks of life, and they're not the most well known um, people who who just happen to be bought with born with with good genes and um, a propensity to work really hard um, in oncology you realise that humans do always find a way to bounce back. Um, and David, I think you really are the real life Chumbawamba. Thank you so much for being so honest um, and for talking so openly. And um, yeah, honestly, I think this is a, a chat that will stick hugely with me for a long time. Um, it is worth watching uh, David's documentary, uh, Dead Man Cycling, uh, which um, was the reason I first heard about him back in 2015. You can find that if you just Google it, um, you can find it on Vimeo um thank you so much for listening um we do hope you're enjoying the pod um as i said Gemma's going to be doing the next couple of interviews um please do let us know uh, about ideas for guests etc we're going to just uh, finish off the first series with eight episodes total and then we're going to have a little bit of a break to regroup and reset um and yeah we'd love to hear your thoughts have a great week guys i hope you all get lots of sunshine and enjoy this glorious dream that we're having <laughs> bye bye <laughs>